Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our session on investing in 2024. We're back with financial experts Han and Sunny, who have both joined us for more than seven to eight sessions already. For those of you guys who are unfamiliar with the speakers, allow me to get the introductions out of the way. Han, he's an ex-investment banker, ex-CEO of Ringgit Plus, a certified financial planner, chartered financial analyst, and now he's the founder of Halogen Capital, Malaysia's first licensed fund manager specializing in digital assets. Han, welcome to the session. Hey, Shinji and everyone. Thanks for having me. Good evening. Yeah, we also have uh, Mr. Sunny here. He's a certified financial planner as well, a frequent commentator in the media, and has over 30 years of experience as an economist. Previously, he worked as a director for S&P Ratings in the Sovent team overseeing the ratings of countries such as Indonesia, India, Malaysia, and Singapore. Mr. Sunny, it's great to have you back. Hey, thanks for having me, Sinji. Yeah, now, tonight's discussion, as the title suggests, will mainly focus on investing in 2024. We'll talk about what sort of strategies that we as investors could employ to maximize profits, as well as expert insights on how next year will be for the markets. So strap in everyone, get comfortable, and just a reminder, the session is not financial or legal advice. Huh? But before we dive into investing, let's talk about a more pressing matter. The new 10% sales tax. Last week, the government announced a 10% sales tax to be imposed on low-value goods costing below 500 ringgit. Now, this tax is only applicable to online purchases. Huh? Local products will not be affected. It will be imposed on January 1st next year, meaning that if you bought any imported low-value goods before this period, you will not be taxed, even if the delivery is after January 1st. And the purpose of this tax, according to the Communications Minister, is to enhance the competitiveness of local products since they are not taxed when bought online. And obviously, you know, citizens are furious on this new policy since now we have to pay more. But let's direct it to the speakers. Let's hear from them. Han, what are your thoughts on this new tax? Will it make local goods, quote unquote, more competitive or not? Mm, thanks. Good question. First up, uh, good, good point to start off, I guess. It's really a contentious issue, right? Uh, I explained to you a little bit about what, what this is and the history behind it, right? So uh, as some of you may remember, uh, in 2018, we we did not have uh, SST, we had GST. And when the then Pakatan Harapan government came to power, they decided, hey, look, like GST, we ran on GST, uh, uh, what, Haposkan GST, which is just get rid of GST as their manifesto. So they, they executed that and then reintroduced SST. So they, uh, uh, as, you know, as a little less, I guess, advanced as a tax regime, uh, it's you know taxed at two ends rather than across the whole value chain, and there's no claimbacks that kind of stuff. Uh, so that uh, rather than having a blanket or rather a, a fixed six percent GST across the entire value chain, we reintroduced SST, which was in force before twenty fifteen when GST was introduced. So uh, the sales tax on on imports and and manufacturing, and the service tax on things like uh, you know services like you go to restaurants. Uh, and then you see a 6% tax uh, on your bill. This was even before GST, right? So they reintroduced SST. 
but there was a little exemption right in 2018 right um um for for low value for low value goods so like you know 500 ringgit uh no no sst in this case sales tax because it's, it's not a service at the restaurant for example uh no 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 sst uh just import and then there's no no, no sales tax so um it was basically like a, a little loophole that uh, overseas people or other overseas manufacturers uh, companies could then export to Malaysian consumers directly like and they did that at, at large quantities or, or at a, in a very large on a very large scale uh, uh, offering on pla on platforms like Lazada and Shopee etc and then that's why you, you've been seeing the last four or five years on these platforms uh, uh, overseas things the equivalent somehow is cheaper uh, um, um, and I, I, I hate to specify a specific country, but uh, frequently from China. So the, the last kind of four or five years with this exemption, right, overseas things have been noticeably cheaper on these online platforms. Um, and actually in budget 2022, which is, I guess, what, two years ago, I guess, more than two years ago, uh, uh, they proposed to remove this strange uh, exemption, 500 ringgit uh, or lower, uh, uh, item, right? I say, hey, look, like we, we cannot have this lah because that's just it, we're being unfair to our local guys who are subject to this SST. Overseas these guys are not, and that's causing what we see in the market today. It's just a, a weird pricing mechanisms. The same item sold by a local person is is more expensive. It may not be ten percent more, but it's it's, temp, uh, it's it's more expensive than an overseas person selling to a Malaysian, which that. Uh, doesn't make what it doesn't make sense. It seems counterintuitive, right? Because you're shipping from overseas. Uh, so the objective of this L, what calling low value goods tax LVG, uh, to to reintroduce this ten percent onto this goods below five hundred ringgit, which was an exemption previously, is just normalize the tax lah. I think normalize the tax situation. But obviously, uh, it's it's a it's a loophole that Malaysians were enjoying for the last you know four five years. So. We got very used to it, and there was a big outcry after budget twenty twenty two. So it was delayed. Uh, another outcry, and that's why it's delayed further. And it's only been introduced in twenty twenty four, which is a full year after it was supposed to be introduced. But I guess people are still upset about it. Uh, long story short, that's the whole history. Um, it will make uh, 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 what they calling harmonization of prices. Of, let's say the same item or similar items. Uh, for a local seller versus an uh, overseas seller. La. That's the whole point of doing this, right? So that's the kind of, you know, I don't want to use the word madani too much, but that's the kind of fairness, right? You're, you're not unfairly, like, having a tax regime, which is unfair. It just so happens to benefit a lot of us today, but but it's actually unfair for local people trying to sell to local people here in Malaysia. Yeah, and that, in essence, should probably make local goods more competitive, huh? because right now, as a consumer myself, I, I I rarely buy local uh, when it goes when I go to online shopping platforms like Taobao or perhaps Alibaba and Amazon, right? We tend to buy those goods from overseas because it's actually like what you said, much more cheaper or actually cheaper compared to local sellers selling the similar product. So Mr. Sunny, as an economist, thoughts on this new tax, uh ten percent sales tax on low value goods, what do you think will it make uh local goods more competitive or not? Um well, it's more of a protectionism kind of thing if you want to look at it from uh, another way. <laughs> so uh, that typically doesn't uh, make goods competitive. Um, it helps to try and even the, the, the playing field. 
um, they, I mean, they, for good reason, there could be good reasons behind it. Um, if, for example, countries' um, products start to flood your domestic markets uh, and have an unfair competition or unfair advantage in that respect, um, their cost of production is lower and so on, um, it just kills off your local industry. And so, therefore, you need to protect your, your local industry by imposing uh, taxes on 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 this incoming goods itself. So, so I think there could be justification for 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 doing so. So I, I I'm not a hundred percent familiar, but I do know basically like for example, in Indonesia they they ban um what's it a TikTok shop or e-commerce by a TikTok couple of months ago if I'm not wrong, um very much in kind of a if I if I'm not wrong in a similar for similar reasons. Uh, to try and protect their, their domestic um, uh, mom and pop uh, kind of industries which were losing out but but again it 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 wasn't really just a, a question of Indonesians Indonesians buying uh, 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 from sellers from from China for example they were Indonesians selling on TikTok to fellow Indonesians and even managing to sell to the rest of the world because TikTok is of course a, a global social platform. And so by banning it, they actually killed off um, not only what they intended to, which is the uh, incoming cheap goods from China, but they actually killed off the entrepreneurship of local Indonesians who were making a living uh, by, by selling through that, that particular platform. Of course, there are other platforms, local platforms and such, uh, but the outreach is probably much less than that of TikTok. So it's never a clear-cut win-win for everybody. Um, hard to say who wins at the end of the day, but I'm also a true believer that you know um, it's hard to push back on, on, on technology and trends. Um, so you may ban this, but at the end of the day, something else will come up and, and, and pose the same, same, same issues. Um, so sometimes it's, it's not so much of trying to permanently protect. Uh, I rather see maybe temporary protection, uh, but equip the local industries, the local guys who are affected to try and up, up their game whether in terms of quality, whether in terms of cost, so that eventually when um, there's, you, the, the ban is lifted, the, 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 the taxes no longer are, are able to prevent you know, um, 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 goods from coming in, uh, at least the local industry is prepared. Yeah. So maybe short term it's okay, but I think long term um, the competitiveness of the local industry has to also go up. Yeah, just to keep you there, Mr. Sunny, I actually kind of agree with your, your points you mentioned, you know, just now. The argument for this is that it is a free market, right? And, and, and the government is actually reversing entrepreneurship because this tax itself will affect all sellers regardless of whether they are from overseas or locally. As long as they are selling imported products, then this new 10% sales tax will be levied. And the justification is that, you know, if local goods want to remain competitive, they have to find more ways on how to perhaps make their products more enticing and, and citizens are actually questioning why is the government suddenly imposing this artificial barrier? So you want to add on to that? Oh, I mean, it's, it's well, domestically, again, uh, one has to always remember that um, at the end of the day, many of these um, uh, mom and pops or many of these um, SMEs are voters 
So at the end of the day, uh, you do have to listen to to uh, you do have to take care of your voters because come the elect come election time, uh, they will remember if you actually took away their bread and butter. So I think it it's it's that, but I don't think the the long term solution is to protect uh, and prevent. I think the long term solution is to prepare and and make make the uh, these guys competitive. Um, there are justifications, I believe, for 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 doing so, uh, because sometimes uh, certain industries just cannot prepare themselves fast enough. Uh, but given time, they they need to, because at the end of the day, uh, we live in a in a in an open economy, an open global marketplace, uh, where you have the internet and such. Uh, people will find ways to buy things elsewhere. So you 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 yourself will have to step up your game, basically. Yeah, so I'll pass the ball to Han. What do you think about this uh, justification arguments that this is a free market and uh, for, local goods, for local goods to remain competitive, they have to find more ways. What do you think about this? Um, I think uh, the same can be true both ways. Or rather, it's not, it's not mutually exclusive. It means we should encourage local manufacturers uh, uh, and distributors to, to, to keep innovating their products to be competitive. Right, but we should also try to make sure that you know we don't hamper them by uh, uh, taxing them on one side, but not taxing overseas guys, right? Because then that's unfairness, uh, which is totally the wrong way around, right? Which is you are actually incentivizing overseas people uh, rather than, uh, and I'm not saying we should tax, uh, put this LVG only on overseas things, and then uh, remove uh, SST for local, because that that that's kind of the 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 weird. Uh, perverse incentive that, that Sunny was talking about, right? I'm saying, hey, look, this is actually uh, around uh, first leveling the playing field, right? So now there's SST for the local guys, and then this ten percent sales tax on uh, overseas LVG, right? But you should also then now that it's kind of level playing field uh, after this tax is introduced, it'll be level play, level playing field. Uh, after that, then that doesn't stop you from trying to encourage the local guys. Hey, look, if, now that you have a level playing field. You need to you need to step up yourself, right? Because otherwise, you won't be competitive. Because the overseas guys have a big global market, which they they're using to upskill themselves, right? Or upscale themselves. You got to do the same, right? So I think for me, you can do both. Yeah, definitely. Now, it's important to know that the ten percent sales tax is charged individually. So this means that even if you bought multiple items to exceed the five hundred ringgit limit you still pay the same amount of total taxes, which is 10% for each item. So let's say you bought a 400 ringgit watch, imported watch, you have to pay 40 ringgit in taxes, and then to add on to that, you bought another 200 ringgit imported bracelet. So the total taxes will be 60 ringgit, yeah, 40 ringgit for the watch, and 20 ringgit for the bracelet. So there is no like way to quote unquote cheat around the system. Vouchers also work differently compared to discounts. If you used an RM50 shopping voucher, the 10% sales tax will be levied on the original selling price before the voucher is applied. But if the seller gives a discount, the sales tax will be based on the discounted selling price. Now, with this in mind, Mr. Sunny, is this policy, policy likely to increase prices? Are we going to see especially imported prices you know, go up? Uh, I don't know because I, I don't have the actual detailed numbers and figures in, with respect to um, 
how much of these goods, whether these goods make their way, um, um, how much of this or how much percentage of these goods basically uh, is in proportion to, let's say, for example, the whole market for a particular XYZ good. Um, you know, so if, if, if consumers have alternatives, then, you know, maybe it's not if the so-called, you know, I'm just trying to use some technical terms, if the product is um, elastic, you know, then basically uh, people just move over to, to another product. If it's inelastic, then they'll stay. They have to pay the price and such. Um, so I guess it really depends on a few things. I just don't have the, the, the sense uh, and, and someone out there may have it. Um, but psychologically, um, you know, there will be some people who will take advantage of this thing to, you know, any single thing that they can take think of uh, as an excuse to raise price, they would. <laughs> but 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 from a data perspective, from uh yeah, I think it's it's I I don't have to. I'm just I mean I don't have the answer to that. So siding towards increasing in prices, pr probably like psychologically, some sellers will use yeah. this as an advantage to, you know, hike up their prices. Han, what do you think? This policy likely to increase prices? Mm, I think uh, on balance, it will for two reasons, two reasons. So uh, I'll give you the simple layman reason first, right? which is, uh, so if I tell you, hey, look, like uh, you're going to get uh, this 10% tax, everyone's expecting it on the 1st of January, you're a seller, right? You're overseas supplier. Uh, would you absorb those, would you absorb that tax, uh, quote unquote, absorb, and and keep keep your price the same, or you just let, uh, you just let, you just let it go up according to the price. You keep your profit margins the same on the basis that you can still be cheaper than local guys anyway. So just anecdotally, you go like, hmm, okay, uh, uh, I'm I'm way cheaper now. It's just ten percent more. I'm still cheaper. Uh, the local consumer doesn't have a choice, uh, or the, his choice is uh, still me, uh, and I just cover my my margin. Uh, my margin is the same. Right. So anecdotally, you can imagine it to go that way. Uh, and second, there's actually a lot of intricacies around, yeah, you mentioned discounts versus vouchers. There's also something uh, around like how do you determine what, whether it's tr like uh, below 500, above 500, including the freight, that kind of stuff. And, and in any policy confusion, right, and it's not, it's not the government's fault necessarily, it's just a very complex. Tax code in this sense is quite complex, right? Uh, in any kind of new policy that comes in when it comes to tax, uh, there will be people who take advantage of confusion, right? And 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 it it might you might see dramatic increases, you know, for a, a few weeks or months, and then then the market starts to normalize again, right? Uh, so for me, uh, for those two reasons, I'd say, uh, if I'm a betting man, uh, I, I would say yes. Okay, okay. So some of the notable platforms that will be affected by this new ten percent tax is uh, Taobao. Definitely will be affected. Alibaba. Amazon, Shane, Shopee, uh, those are for overseas imported items only, and Lazada as well, overseas imported items. So yeah, hopefully that uh, clarifies some of the questions you guys in the audience may have regarding this new sales tax. Now let's shift gears and move on to investing in 2024. So the Federal Reserve has recently kept interest rates steady in its final FOMC meeting in fact, the committee is looking to reduce them earlier than expected next year. During the meeting last week, the chairman, Jerome Powell, he said that the Federal Reserve is pretty much done hiking interest rates. Recession, a recession is no longer required for the committee to reduce interest rates. And the result of this was a massive jump in the markets. The S&P in the past seven days rallied 3.16%. 
And back at home, the FBM KLCI recovered 1.5%. If you guys are holding stocks, equities right now, you may have a bit of a cheer, okay? Han, just to keep the audience in the loop, do you mind explaining why or how the Federal Reserve's decisions affect the global market? Um, all kinds of reasons. Uh, why we here sitting in Malaysia, and in Sunny, in, in his case, in Singapore, say why we sit in Southeast Asia, we care so much about, you know, like a, a handful of people uh, uh, sitting uh, in something called the Federal Reserve in America seems very uh, opaque and abstract to, to sitting 10,000 miles away or 15,000 km away. Why do we care about these people? And, and the, the answer is simply that uh, um, partly uh, US, the, the US dollar, right? As whatever happens to the US dollar affects the world, right? 80% um, of global trade, uh, uh, 50% of, of uh, global effects, etc., etc. all kinds of stats you can share. But long story short, whatever affects the US dollar affects the world. Uh, so that's one. Second is the, U, U, the US is probably the single largest uh, capital market, right? Like deepest, broadest, largest. When I say capital market, I mean stocks, bonds. Uh, I mean capital, right? Like investors, right? Um, single largest by, by a wide margin. Uh, uh, and, and whatever the Fed does impacts their propensity to invest or propacts their, in, uh, their propensity to raise capital. So we have to watch carefully, right? Because, uh, uh, you know, if, if capital dries up there, it tends to dry up everywhere because they are simply the largest. Just so then everyone knows why we care so much about this single country's uh, 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 interest rate decision policy uh, and policymakers there, right? So just, just to give a sense, right? I hope that that's clear enough, Gigi. Yeah, that's actually that's actually very clear. I will just pass the ball to Mrs. Sunny as well. Mrs. Sunny, you got anything to add on this? Why or how the Federal Reserve's decision uh, affect the global market? It's it's. I mean, uh, Hans has mentioned the fact that it's the um, it is the largest economy in the world today. I mean, so certain some measures put China ahead a bit in in certain measures, but by and large, it's the US, and it is the only economy which is kind of growing now look look over to the eu it's it's flat it's 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 at the um, kind of a flat line you look over in the into china it's really in the doldrums so if if the us goes down then basically um the whole world goes down basically at this point in time um, um you know us interest rates itself if you could, so it does matter because it's going to impact the us economy and of course it impacts financial financial markets itself um, higher rates, lower rates, it attracts capital in, capital comes out. So, so people are looking towards towards what the Fed does in terms of rates, both because of its impact on the economy and its and and its impact on the financial markets in the US because uh, of its size and what Hans mentioned, the depth of the of the markets and such. So that's in tra traditionally that's the reason why what the does what the Fed does matters. Okay, so let's let's talk about the U.S. market first, lah. Before we move on to Malaysia's side, just now we discussed how the Federal Reserve um, is expected to reduce interest rates earlier than expected, and the question now, Mrs. Sunny, is how will this impact the U.S. market? Basically, what is your outlook for the S and P for twenty twenty four? I'm still in the midst of trying to formulate what I think the the markets will be or how the markets will react. There are basically two schools of thoughts now. Two school two schools of thoughts uh thought going into twenty twenty four. 
um, the first school of thought is one which looks at the US and says that basically the glass is half empty, which means that um, in 2022, we had massive rate hikes, which was expected to actually um, slow the US economy down drastically in 2023, because that's typically what happens, especially with that such aggressive rate hikes in 2022. Um, and thus causing a recession and thus the stock market would have to then adjust lower. Uh, that didn't happen. Um, the reason, a couple of reasons, one of them is the US actually um, mind-boggling, in a mind-boggling way, um, had a budget deficit, which I think is about 6-7% of GDP. Uh, the type of numbers which you just do not expect to see when a country is not officially in a recession. So you are kind of overstimulating when you have a 6-7% kind of uh, budget deficit during a situation where the economy is not in a, in a recession. Okay, So that kind of offset, um, the fiscal policy basically kind of offset uh, a lot of the, the so-called monetary tightening. Uh, and we had extremely peculiar situation where coming out from COVID, uh, both households and corporates were flush with cash, cash from the so-called transfers from the government, cash from the so-called quantitative easing that has happened for over the past couple of years. And so therefore, any hike in rates were, was actually beneficial. It was so strange. You know, you look at some of the corporate balance sheets, they were actually making more money because their cash holdings was now making higher interest revenue, whereas you would expect higher interest rates to cause uh, uh, to to cause uh, interest costs to increase. But because they have been so flush with cash, uh, um, basically it actually uh, uh, helped prop up uh, their balance sheet. Basically, <laughs> so so similarly for 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 household itself, so it was kind of a strange situation where higher rates was beneficial to 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 corporates especially and also to households. And you had a situation where typically the housing market, which has a very huge multiplier, once the housing market declines, so every single thing along that, that housing market supply chain from contractors to people who provide furnishing to the agents to the, to the, to the people selling fridge and fridges and washing machines and such, everybody gets hit. Uh, but the housing market effectively did not collapse, despite the fact that mortgage rates went up from almost... 3% to double to 7-8%. Um, and, and, and behind it was again a very strange uh, 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 situation where some people were selling, okay, uh, or rather the people who wanted to buy were, were not buying because they said if I buy now my mortgage rates uh, are going to be so high so they, they don't buy. So sellers, buyers basically dried up. You would think some people would be selling or some people did sell but you think that the majority of them may sell. Because they, 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 say, they say to themselves, oh, housing prices have gone up. Oh, the housing market may collapse. So I better go and sell now. But lo and behold, what happened was these guys who, 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 who are holding on to huge amount of um, positive equity on their housing, uh, housing prices um, said to themselves, I'm not going to sell. Because if I sell now and I go and, I'm going to lose that, that so-called 3 to 4% mortgage rates, which I have locked in for 30 years. And if I go and sell, yes, I make some money on the equity side, fine. But when I go and buy a new house, I'm going to borrow and, and, and lock in at a mortgage of about 7 8%. So I'm not going to be so stupid to do that, so I don't sell. So you had a situation where despite the fact that buyers dried up, 
you would think basically that the supply would then push or rather the, the, the sellers would come in and push the market down, but the sellers also didn't turn up at the party. So we have a housing market which is just meandering down. Uh, certain places are a little bit more than the others, but not the collapse that you would expect given the, the, the doubling of, of mortgage rates and, and, and rates. So in a nutshell, 2023 was strange. Strange enough to, to result in basically um, the US economy not uh, moving into a recession. So now the big question now is this. Is, was there a long and variable lag which would actually start to kick in in 2024. So would it be a case now whereby when you look at corporates, they had huge cash flow and such, some of these corporates are basically now in dire straits because um, those who did, who had cash, actually if they, if they were leveraged up, they would have to pay their, their, their so-called higher uh, loan, loan costs and so on. So I, we are cognizant of, of, of the fact, and we've read a lot of reports, that a lot of the cash balances in corporates are starting to dwindle already. The savings of individuals, households are starting to dwindle. And you can tell from the fact that, the on the other hand, the credit card balances are starting to go up. So these kind of things anecdotally tells you that basically both corporations and households, certain, certain segments are beginning to feel that, that pinch from higher rates thanks to the fact that basically um, uh, rates have remained high for, 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 pretty, uh, for pretty long and, and eaten into their reserves, so to say. Yeah? So going into early part of 2024, um, if the Federal Reserve continues to keep rates, let's say, and hold rates to the second half of the year, maybe we should we would see basically some of these this this negative impact start to hit some of these uh you know the c plus i in the in the in the gdp gdp equation c plus i plus g x minus m so the c and i may be hit um in the first half of the day so that's one school of thought you know before the fed starts to realize that yeah okay maybe we need to start cutting also now you know, which is in the second half the second school of thought is no, the market is just going to take off from 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 the start in 2024. Why? Because uh, there's a lot of cash by the sideline. A lot of people are parked in money markets. A lot of people are parked in bonds. Later survey by the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, the typical fund manager survey shows a huge amount of overweight in bonds. Um, they've waited for one year, um, and basically now people are prepared to take on risks. And so therefore, from the word go in 2024, you're going to see the market start moving higher and higher. Okay. So at this particular point, I still haven't formulated a, a, a strong conviction uh, to, to either, either views. And I think that is something which I've kind of sensed um, is the way more and more people are starting to think. Yeah, it's, let me try and explain this very weird thing. I'm beginning to read about analysts and strategists who say, I just don't want to put down a bet on where rates are going. I just don't want to put down a bet on where the economy is going. It's just so difficult. I'm going to play this, this game where, where it's a bit like a momentum game. I'm going to see where the markets are going. And based on that, markets are going to tell me whether it's scenario one or scenario two. Okay? So rather than put your bet now and say that I think wholeheartedly is going to be scenario number one, okay, um, and then find out that later it's not, people are saying, no, I'm willing to just wait for a while and let the market uh, uh, dictate. So in, in a strategy perspective, this is called 
uh, in the market it's like it's called like a momentum strategy you wait for the train to leave the station and you jump on you don't try and be smart and say i jump onto the train uh, uh, and and wait and think that it's going to leave the station uh, and at the end of the day you find out that you jump on the wrong train and the train stays stagnant when another train starts to leave the station so i'm getting a sense um, a lot of things that we're seeing in 2023 which caught the market off guard which caught strategies off guard um, people are now saying it's just so difficult things are not going in accordance to traditional um, uh, economic theory uh, so it's much better to to jump on the bandwagon when it starts moving rather to jump on before and try to and try to anticipate whether this is the right bandwagon or not yeah thank you so much mr sunny and just to really clarify for the audience uh, this forecast is actually quite important because the u.s market really impacts the global market quite significantly uh, especially the malaysian market as well and at the end of the day if you're investing in asb asm these unit trusts invest in local and overseas investments so yeah. therefore to have roughly a good idea on how next year will perform we kind of can see whether asb asm will continue yeah. to make profits etc yeah. let me just, let me just tell you about the early this year in 2023 the us forecast in in early 2023 january uh, as usual a whole bunch of uh, wall street strategies and, and and investment banks came out to make forecasts the forecasts all range from 3004 to about 4004 uh, at the bottom half of the forecast were very familiar names morgan stanley ubs i think barclays were there i mean i said to be corrected but these are the names i remember so they were predicting 34 35 36 maybe 37 around there jp morgan and such the market today is at what four seven four eight if, if I'm not wrong. And so it it actually exceeded even the most bullish forecast uh, that we saw at the beginning of, of, of 2023. That's how wrong the market can be. Um, and similarly, um, I think, again, that's why I said going into, into 2024, uh, people are also trying to adopt a more flexible way of looking at things and, and not try and... Uh, um, you know, take bets, strong bets in any particular direction itself. Yeah. Uh, Han, back to you. What are your thoughts on the US market in 2024? How will it perform considering that the Federal Reserve is expected to reduce interest rates earlier than expected? Uh, I think Sunny covered it quite well, but I'm going to add a few more things, now, which is to focus a little on the second part of your statement, which is uh, the Federal Reserve or uh, uh, ch uh, changing rates, right? Let's look at the first look at range of rates being discussed. At the moment, it's it's five and a half percent, which is at fifteen year or sixteen year highs, I guess by now, sixteen year highs. Uh, the Fed folks or the Fed officials have started telegraphing something like three cuts next year, right? Twenty twenty four point seven five. So get us down to four seventy five. The market is kind of front running them, or, or rather doesn't believe doesn't believe them, and the market is ever exuberant, ever positive, assuming that the Fed will cut even deeper, right? And say, hey, look, like uh, I don't think I, I think inflation the inflation beast is gone, therefore giving the Fed lots of ability to cut further, five to six cuts, so one one point two five to one point five. Um, I I think this is uh, uh, uh it's hard to go exact, but for me. Even if it was a 1.5 cut, that, that puts it at 4%, right? Which is still higher than any point before this last 
hiking cycle for the last 15 years means it's still super high, way higher than what we've been used to for the last 15 years as investors. Uh, I mean, to, to answer Sunny's point about, you know, markets telling you where you want to go, I think you mentioned train leaving station. That's a good one. Uh, I can tell you where the train is going right now. Right? Assuming it's left the station yesterday. Uh, uh, you know, it, equity markets in the US are at, at or close to all-time highs. I think for S&P, it's almost 1% away from its all-time high. Uh, uh, the Nasdaq and, and Dow are uh, way past their all-time highs uh, in, in this month, right? The December, the last couple of weeks, right? Um, so what does that mean? What is, that te- what is the, this train? Where is this train headed right now that you feel like jumping on? Um, uh, this tells me that the, the, the market is pricing in what's called, what, what's, what people are calling a soft landing, i.e., the Fed has done this perfectly. They've raised rates to an adequate level to kill inflation without hurting the economy. And, and, and you know, uh, Sunny mentioned it just now, so corporate profits are, are currently all time highs, uh, um, uh, reflecting the markets right now. Um, uh, uh, so uh, so what, what, what the market is saying is that, hey, look, there's not going to be a recession. If at all, it'll be super, super shallow, super mild that you, that you won't even feel it at all. Barely any layoffs, barely any job losses. And this has only happened actually two or three times in the last 100 years or so, right? And, and the last time was 1995, right? The last time we had so-called, this so-called soft landing, i.e. The, the Fed hiked rates and didn't cause a ma- massive re- recession was in 1995. And markets rallied thirty percent that that year, right? So the, the equivalent of twenty twenty four happened in nineteen ninety five. Uh, would would ha- had happened in nineteen ninety five. The markets are pricing in that to happen again, right? A twenty thirty percent increase in market in, in financial markets. Uh, but more often than not, when when the Fed raises rates so abruptly and holds it there for quite a long time, right? What you see is that. You know, the Fed gets it wrong a lot, right? And if it happens any, anywhere like the mid noughties so 2005, 6, 7, or the early 70s, you could see, you know, a deep recession, you know, uh, job losses, uh, unemployment going from 3 point something to like 6, 7, 8, 9. Uh, um, and, and what you see in, in, in markets is, you know, a drop in corporate profits, yes, but 30 to 40% drop, right? So the, the question, if you're positioning yourself in terms of your outlook for 2024, uh, and you're focusing on U.S. markets, right? Uh, the the ranges are so wide, thirty percent up, if it's a truly a soft landing, or thirty to forty percent drop uh, over twelve months if it's a, a deeper recession plus a spike of inflation potentially because you get it wrong. Uh, for me, that that's that 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 kind of range is getting a lot of analysts very uncomfortable. So anyone trying to go out there with an outlook, uh, I'd say you are a very brave man. Right now, the market is saying it's the former, meaning uh, all systems go, GDP is still strong, uh, Fed timed this, got this perfectly correct. Uh, um, for me, I, I'd remain cautious because there are still many things that could go wrong in the next 12 months, right? Uh, uh, as Sunny pointed out, um, corporate profits are all-time high due to strange reasons rather than, than kind of necessarily strength in anybody's balance sheets uh, and strength in anyone's profitabilities. Uh, at the operating level, um, there's still many ways the, 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 the two wars going on could go wrong uh, in the world, uh, spiking up things like energy, causing erosion in corporate profits and, and household uh, spending capability, spending power. So for me, the range is too high. I'd be so nervous, right? To say, hey, look, the train's left the station. We'll all go for a soft landing, i.e. no recession. Market's going to rally 30% 
next year, uh, I'd say sure you can you can position for that, but you know uh, you might want to keep some dry powder on the side in case the Fed gets it wrong like it so often does. Mr. Yeah. Sunny, you got you got, you got a response to that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's why I think after at the end of twenty twenty two, everybody thought that the high high the aggressive interest rate hikes would cause a recession. So everybody everybody positioned themselves going into 2023, expecting that. Come 2023, didn't happen because of what I just mentioned just now, the whole bunch of very peculiar things which typically don't happen in, 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 in normal economic theory. Raise rates, your corporates actually make money. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Uh, you know, rates go up so high, people actually don't want to sell their homes. They're, they're not even afraid of, of housing prices coming off. They're more afraid of remortgaging at higher rates and stuff like that because rates just went up too aggressively. So all these things basically resulted in um, normal thinking, not making rational sense in 2023, you know. So come now into, into 2024, everybody's thinking fine and dandy, rates are coming off, stock market should should start to fly, we are near all-time highs, breaks the res resistance, this is going to uh, uh, just go to the moon and, and, and such. Again, everybody's position for that. So I think anybody who trades the market knows that once the market is has discounted something, once the market has positioned itself in that particular with that particular scenario, then actually the risk is the opposite side because you're already long you're already long risk now, basically anticipating that twenty twenty four is going to be a good year. The thing that can go wrong is actually if if it doesn't turn out to be a good year, then you find um, um, the market is just overly long and they have to actually uh, shade off some of that long position and that's going to cause a, a retreat or at least the market to move sideways. Uh, so quite similar but the opposite side of what, what happened in early 2023, uh, so, uh, early 2023, now early 24 is the other side, too, too bullish, not say too bullish but going in with a bullish expectation. Um, and again, just too many things have been so-called um, um, non-rational in a way that I would not be surprised if, again, the way we think, simply put, lower rates, higher stock market. You know, that's the simplistic way we're looking at it. I would not be surprised if for some reason that just doesn't work out. Yeah, I also wouldn't blame you guys for taking the safe side and not you know, placing any solid predictions for 2024 because it's already looking quite confusing. The Federal Reserve, you know, expected to reduce interest rates, but then we also have this uh, both of the wars going on, one in the Middle East, one still in Ukraine. It's very hard to predict where it will actually go in the next few months. Now, talking about this, right, just now, Han, you mentioned about keeping some dry powder aside in case there is probably a huge dip, then investors can capitalize on the opportunity. Let's let's dive into it, okay? So how should we as retail investors position ourselves in terms of investments next year? How can we maximize our profits and minimize our losses? Obviously, I'm going to put a not financial advice tag to this. Lah, so so go, go ahead, Han. Yeah, I suppose your keyword there is uh, investor uh, rather than trader, right? We're not trying to trade markets. You know, I'm not one for yeah. saying, hey, look, next Long one month. Here. Yeah, not one month, two months, six months. Let's just position this way. You know, make 15% in the last three months, that kind of thing. Uh, we're, we're here to invest, right? And, and really position our long-term portfolios, whether it's for retirement, whether you're 10 years away, 20 years away, 30 years away from retirement, or maybe you are looking to buy a home in five years, or you're looking to save your kids' education in 15 years or so. Uh, anything more than five, 10 years, you're looking long-term already. And what that means is 
uh, stop focusing so much on where markets are specifically. Uh, save a bit only to satisfy your inner trading tendencies. But it really, like, uh, not not any significant amount should be used to 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 have any specific discretion. If you ask me, right? Don't focus where markets are. Uh, focus more on your target allocation based on your own risk appetite. Right? If you're a young person, make sure you're taking enough risk in the market. Why? Because you have 20, 30 years before retirement, probably 20 years before your, your child goes to, to university or whatever. Uh, if you are, if you have children, young children. If you're a bit older, let's say you're in the 40s or 50s, you're somewhat closer to retirement, say 10 years away, 5 years away. You know, you might want to take not so much risk so rather than a young person 70% equities and, and, and high-risk assets, 30% lower-risk assets. Uh, you want to be at 50-50 if you are kind of in the 45-50-55 range, right? So focus so more on your target allocation going into 2024 and make sure you're there, right? If, if you, you really had to spend the next two weeks trying to figure out how should you position your portfolio, all right, you would be far better placed uh, focusing on getting to your target allocation, right? And, and, and it could be 70-30, right? 70% equities, 30% uh, safer stuff, bonds and fixed income. Or it could be 50-50 depending on whether you're older or younger. Right? But if you're not there, you know, you would be, you would much better off trying to get there over the next two weeks rather than specifically timing the market. Right? And, and when I say leave some dry powder, what I mean by that is don't go all in thinking uh, and say, hey, look, I'm supposed to be 70-30, but I really believe in this kind of uh, a soft landing narrative. I'm going to overextend beyond my, my current allocation and, and overweight on equities because, you know, in a, in a soft landing scenario, equities are going to boom 30% or whatever, right? But that creates risk in your life, which, you know, if you're a long-term investor, you don't need, right? You've got time to spare, uh, uh, focus on your allocation, whatever it may be, and, and, and get, get to it in the next two weeks rather than trying to time the market specifically because even experts get it wrong. Yeah, and the experts, they often get it wrong. As Mr. Sunny said just now, the prediction of these major financial institutions on the start and the end of the, during the start of the year is actually quite off compared to the current level of the US stock market. So on to you, Mr. Sunny. Uh, how should investors position their investments next year, uh, maximize profits, minimize losses, any specific strategies? Like, like every year, I think at the end of the year, people tend to uh, relook their their portfolios. I think what a lot of people will find is when they look at their portfolio, they may be a little bit under risk uh, because of the, um, when, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when we entered 2023, uh, focus was on potential recession and such. Um, and so what Hans mentioned about, you know, uh, reallocate back to your appropriate risk profile, don't go overboard and such, which is very true. So let's say, for example, I speak to you, Sinji, and you said, oh, you know, um, I was worried about 2023. So instead of being a, a moderately aggressive investor with about 70% equity, 30% bonds, I actually not, notched down to about 50-50. And now you're going to ask yourself, oh, I'm actually under risk because my actual risk is 70-30. So I need to quickly put back my 20% equities because um, that's my, my original risk. I'll follow Hans' uh, 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 recommendation not to overdo it and go to 80 or 90 or 100% equities, but I still have to now add on 20. So that is, that's the one that, that I think may just push the market a little bit. Um, at the beginning of the year, if everybody starts to rebalance back to uh, um, where the original position is. Um, but that's the correct thing to do because at the end of the day, your portfolio should reflect 
um, your 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 risk profile. The interesting thing is the composition of the portfolio, um, you know, and that has been such a pain for very long. You know, you, all you have to do is call up a and p chart, a stock 600 chart representing Europe and an MSCI Asia chart representing Asia and you may want to throw in a, a China or whatever. And you'll find that basically from 2000 and let's say 11, 2011 all the way to 2020, the only market that, that went up was basically the US. So had you had you followed what traditional textbooks on portfolio theory would have told you that is to diversify into uh, at least you know the three major regions um, Asia Europe and and the US uh, you would have lagged behind a lot because the US was the only one that was going up okay? and then interestingly enough last year yeah, not last year sorry this year sorry this year in 2023 um, Everybody was thinking that oh, it's gonna the U.S. is actually going to be the one that's going to lead the market. You know, Dow, uh, Wall Street is up, and so that's therefore that's why the rest of the markets were up. But actually, when you look at it, uh, it wasn't really the U.S. which actually pulled up all the other markets. Japan is up twenty odd percent. Japan was not up because Wall Street was up. Japan was up because it has un, 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 unwound its U, U curve control. It's raising rates. It's pulling back Japanese money, which has which had left Japan and is now coming back into Japan. It's up because of that. Uh, when you look at when you look at India and you look at Brazil itself, domestically, yes, they are doing well. But at the same time, uh, you know, they are part of a brick family, which where Russia is no longer investable, where China is also not is being shunned away. So anybody who looks to invest in this group of, 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 of four countries will avoid two and start uh, transferring money into the other two. You know? so, so they benefited from it. So basically it is still very country specific and so on and so on. So there's a lot of things. Even when you look at North, North Asia, um, Korea and also Taiwan, which, are, which have led the Asian uh, uh, gains. Uh, these are also IT AI related gains, you know. And so, so what I'm trying to also say is now, you know, we, if we used to say, oh, it's you know, Wall Street is up, everything is up, so therefore it pulls every everybody up. Um, not the case. When you look specifically, it was really individual, individual countries specific reasons uh, and that's the reason why Singapore, Malaysia, Southeast Asia did not even go up. Thailand is down like 15% on the year. If Wall Street was the main uh, drag up for everybody, these guys would have been up at the same time. And now we're back to what? Assessing individual countries to see whether they are investable or not. So it just becomes so tricky uh, 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 at this particular point. So in order to be safe, I would say, uh, to be safe, I would still say go back to your diversified portfolios uh, to your correct risk profile okay um, um, you know swing those portfolios based on the traditional uh, underweight and overweight you can if you're positive you add another 10 percent to whatever equities you have if you're negative you take away another 10 so you can swing within a small margin at this particular point don't be too aggressive at either side overly overly conservative or overly aggressive i think at this particular point just stay uh, neutral at your at your current weight and just to explain current weight means basically if you are a moderate investor 50 50 if you are a moderately aggressive it's 70 30 70 equity 30 bonds if you are an aggressive in 90 10 the other way around if you're moderately conservative it's 70 bonds 30 equities if you're conservative it's 90 percent equities 10 percent bonds 
90% bonds, 10% equities. So there is this so-called preset neutral weight for all the five risk profiles uh, that we have. So that's where we think investors ought to be at this point in time. Um, and then see, you know, uh, uh, if the market really tells you that it is moving higher, then you can just overweight add in another 10% equities. If you think that it is coming off, then you lower down uh, your 10% equities. Just play around uh, within that so-called uh, traditional overweight and underweight. Don't try and be like what Han say, uh, gung-ho, 100% equity, 100% bonds, you know, that kind of swing here and there. Uh, really not the time to do that. Yeah, now speaking of uh, portfolio allocations, right? what sort of returns should uh, new investors or, or perhaps younger investors look for? Let's say currently this person is 25 or around 25 to 30 years old, doesn't really have a lot of commitment, but also doesn't really have a lot of capital. Uh, what sort of returns should they, should they look for every year? Like 7 to 9% or 10 to 12%? What sort of returns is considered uh, adhering to their risk profile? Mr. Sani, what do you think? So risk-free risk rate, in Malaysia, risk-free rate is probably, you know, I, w I want to say MGS, um, but then you you have uh, AS, ASB, right? Yes, ASB is, what's the dividend ASB again? Five, five and a half? It's a 6.92% in the past, I think, okay, 10 to 14 years. But it's been decreasing. No, 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 no currently, currently. Oh, oh, currently, I think it's 45 Four and a half, to be safe. Yeah. Okay, so, so let's take four and a half around there. I think FD, 12-month FD is what, around there maybe or so. I'm not, if I'm not wrong, I'm not sure. Yeah, low force. Uh, low force. Okay, so four, four and a half. So that's really where, where if you were to risk off and put everything as a conservative investor, that's what you should be getting. If you want to take on a little bit more equity risk, um, then you should be compensated for the risk. So basically, if you are going to take um, um, slightly more equity risk, blue chips, whatever, then probably two, 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 200 basis point more. So you ought to be getting six, six to six to seven, let's say. You gung-ho a little bit, go into the small caps, um, you know, go into the emerging markets, stuff like that, you probably want to be compensated with an additional 200 basis point. Then you're talking about maybe sing, uh, high single digits, 9%. Potentially even ten percent because you need to be compensated for the risk. So that that is how I would see um, 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 where uh, what your what your returns ought to be um, uh, based on the assets that you take and the assets that you take on are of course based on your own um, time horizon, risk profile, and so on and so on and so on. Yeah, Han, same question. What sort of returns should investors look for considering that you know they're 25 to 30, they don't have a lot of commitments? What's, what, what APY is uh, quote-unquote good for them? Um, good question. I, I know we, we as in I've said it a couple of times already on this, this session, and uh, there's a common trope that the younger you are, the more risk you should take. But I guess the other thing to add, you mentioned a young person, 25 to 30 years old. The other part I should point out is uh, what are you investing for, right? If you're investing for retirement, indeed, you know, that means 25, 30 years away, you want to retire a, a bit earlier, let's say 50, 55, rather than 60. It's still 20, 25, 30 years away, right? Uh, that gives you a lot of time, right, to take significant risk without hurting yourself too much in the long term. Meaning if you can handle a 30, 40, 50% drawdown in a given year, uh, if you've got 20 years to, to really make it back and average out and, and try to get an average of what, what Sunny mentioned, 9-10% investing in small caps, investing in 
in emerging markets, right? And and that's the kind of risk you can take, right? But let's say you're twenty five thirty and you're actually investing to to make a first house down payment, right? In three years time, your risk profile is actually closer to a conservative investor, someone who can take risk over a two three year period, which means your portfolio should be significantly in MGS or, or ASB, right? And, and only a little bit in equities to just give yourself a little bit of uplift if the market does do well, right? Uh, so like that 70-30 portfolio is probably more for you. You're closer to a retired person, right? Because technically your time horizon is only three years. You want to buy a property in three years with the money, that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, I would add the extra layer. Like it's not just, a, hey, young, take more risk. It's more around... What are you investing for? Right? Investing for long term? Yes, you can afford to take that that significant risk, 70-80% of your portfolio in, in higher risk equities and only 20% or 30% in bonds fixed income uh, or ASB in, in this case, right? or a ASB type of investment. right? And and with that kind of profile, you should be expecting high single digit, right? 9-10% a year over that kind of 20-30 years. Uh, so hopefully that, that answers the question. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. It entirely depends on how uh, how risky you want your portfolio to be and considering your time horizon, whether it's short or long. And at the end of the day, make sure you adjust your risk profile accordingly. So we are approaching the end of our questions and uh, we'll head on over to the Q&A sessions shortly after this. If you guys in the audience have any questions at all, hopefully you guys are enjoying the session as much as I do. I've learned a lot of stuff today. If there's any questions at all, just pop it over at the bottom right-hand corner. There's a comment section. Or you can DM us. We will ask your questions anonymously. Or you can basically step up to be a speaker as well. I will prove you guys and we will uh, talk about your questions. So the last question that I plan for the speakers tonight is, which asset or industry are you most positive of going in 2024? And why is this the case? So uh, pass it to Han first. Oh, this depends on the, the outlook again, right? But I think regardless of your outlook, right? Assu assuming like you've got your target allocation and you want to say, hey, look, within the allocation, what should I do? Uh? Um, good question. So let's, let's start with the easy parts first, right? In terms of, let's say your fixed income portion, right? Uh, um, uh, I can tell you that in 2022, most of 2022 and the first half of 2023, bonds were absolutely short, right? Uh, especially if you're longer duration means you... You were taking kind of five, 10 year risks on your bonds and some people even 20 years. So you're buying long-term bonds uh, at low rates and then when rates spike, the prices of those bonds dropped. That's just how bonds work, especially at the long end. Uh, but I can see, and, and for those of you who got burned by that and, and, and got scared and decided to cut back your duration, meaning you're taking only short-term bonds type of risk, like six months, one year, uh, and some, you're going to bills, you're going to you know money markets and cash, uh, perhaps, you know, there's, uh, there's been a bit of comeback in the last couple of months and there will be, in my sense is, given where rates are going, it's just about how much is being cut rather than whether it's going to be cut. Uh, you might want to consider uh, starting to increase your duration back again. I mean, on your bonds portfolio, you might be on the six-month range of life. You might want to take that to a couple of years, three years down and enjoy the, the recovery in, in the bond markets uh, uh, that people have been in the last three, two, three months or so and and. I expect may do continuously in the, in the next kind of year. And even if it doesn't recover much, you're still, you're still getting, you know, in US dollar terms, you know, four-ish, right? On that kind of risk, four something, four point something uh, on US dollar terms. And in ringgit terms also, you should be getting uh, uh, above that, right? Above four. Uh, pretty good, right? If you're, if, if you're looking at the, the bonds part of your portfolio, 
now you can consider increasing the duration a bit, taking a, taking a bit more structured uh, duration and credit risk there. Uh, on the equity side, honestly, it really depends on you personally whether you think uh, the Fed's got it right, right? Soft landing, uh, um, here we go. Then you, 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 you go more aggressive on the, the cyclical stuff, right? Technology, uh, 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 banks, and, 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 and go for it, right? But, you're, you're, you're going, if, but if you are off, off, on the camp that you're not so sure, you have to be in equities because your risk profile says so. Uh, if if you want to protect yourself against a hard landing, perhaps what you want are the more defensive parts of the portfolio. So you cut back on the tech stuff, cut back on the bit of the financials. You know, go towards retailers, uh, which are not not discretionary retailers, but you know, more grocers, pharmacies, uh, uh, uh you know, health, health, and uh, more defensive sectors. Right. Uh, even if it does hit a hard recession, those will go down, but not as much as the cyclical stuff. Um, and uh, uh, uh given that I am the the founder and CEO of Halogen, uh, Malaysia's first crypto fund manager. I have to say, I'm I'm uh, I'm very positive on crypto in 2024, and not just because I'm in I'm in industry, uh, but because uh, of the very many structural tailwinds behind you know crypto as 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 uh, as industry long long and short term. Now in the short term, we have you know institutional adoption of crypto, uh, uh, a structural bull run over the next 12 to 18 months. Based on this, you know the crypto market cycles, we had a terrible twenty twenty three, uh, sorry, ter- terrible twenty twenty two, and a small recovery in twenty twenty three in line with you know previous crypto cycles. Even if the macro environment smashes itself and we see a 40 percent correction in 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 crypto markets, that's part of the cost, right? And 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 that's opportunity to to get to get to to lock up your. To to sorry to 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 go in further right and 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 experience the the structural bull bull run, uh, due to reducing supply and increasing structural demand, uh, institutional demand I should say, so yeah those three, uh, that's kind of, uh, my words on those three major asset classes. All right, thanks so much, Han. Uh, moving on to Mr. Sunny, this same question, uh, Mr. Sunny. How should investors? Sorry, that's not a question I asked really. What what asset or industry are you most positive of going in twenty twenty four? Why is this the case? Considering what Hans said just now as well, I I, I think the most clear cut one, uh, of course, one can never be hundred percent sure is of course um bonds, fixed income, um because we are talking about a question of how fast you know I think in everybody's mind um why would interest rates rise from here the only reason i could think of is basically if uh, inflation spiked up and inflation would probably spike up if commodity prices go up um, you know especially oil Um, and we know recently basically that the us has also started to produce a lot of oil um, um, so much so that it's worrying opec uh, analysts are coming out to say it's quite unlikely that this year we're going to see oil prices rise above $100 per barrel. Um, China is no longer there gobbling up commodities, soft commodities, hard commodities, um, thus leaving demand uh, uh, um, demand um, uh, missing, rather there's a missing demand there. So it does look as though the inflation scrooge um, is quite difficult to reappear under that scenario. So Given that central banks across the world will be, the question will be, you know, how fast will they start reducing their rates? And the, 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 the asset class which 
clear-cut benefits from a reduction in interest rates is bonds. Bond uh, interest yields come down, interest rates come down, bond prices go up. So the big question, of course, now is how do you play that? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking to our clients about um, like moving up the, the duration because of this, you know, uh, um, and of course, longer duration means more sensitivity to a decline in interest rates. So, so that could be one play uh, within within the bond space. Um, the emerging market bonds, which have actually not recovered um, a lot uh, past two years, not only did they get hit in 2022, but they didn't even recover a lot in 2023, especially dragged down by China and such. That looks very interesting um, because um, not only is there potential catch-up um, due to the fact that it's, 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 it's been sold off and remains um, uh, sold off, uh, but also for the fact that the dollar may weaken. So every time dollar weakens, it's actually positive for emerging markets also. So again, slightly higher risk, but that could be a, a play within the so-called uh, bond space. Yeah, so by and large, it's basically kind of clear-cut. Uh, bond looks to be clear-cut because if rates come off, then naturally speaking, bond prices go up. Yeah. Equities, I don't know. I know I, 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 I sense the momentum, I sense the bullishness. Um, but you can always, um, let's say for example, if I were to build a portfolio, okay, and if you wanted to build a portfolio that gave you a certain level of volatility, and that's how you sometimes you target volatility to give you the returns. Okay, um, my thinking is: should I have bonds and put it with equity? Should I have fifty percent bonds, six uh fifty percent bonds, fifty percent equity? Maybe. 40% bonds, 60% equities, and that gives me a certain kind of risk-reward which I'm happy about. Or am I conf more confident to have 80% bonds and 20% higher risk uh, allocations like what Hans has mentioned, Bitcoin, gold, okay? And when I add 80% bonds with this kind of higher risk allocation, I get more or less the same if I add it on basically, or if I if I were to refer back to the first portfolio, 60 equity, 40, 40% bond. You know, uh, these are not exact figures, but what I'm trying to say is the higher volatility in these two assets like gold and, 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 and Bitcoin, uh, you kind of offset it because there's a, it's a much smaller allocation and you have a bigger allocation in bonds. So you achieve the same outcome in terms of your volatility of the portfolio. Is that a better play? Um, my view is potentially it could be a better play. Uh, I'm almost, not say almost certain, but I'm pretty sure that I'm going to make on my bond side and, I would, and I'm more confident in terms of um, these uh, uh, asset classes which I've just spoken about. Both gold and, and maybe Bitcoin, it's not that I'm bullish on the so-called speculative element of them. I'm actually more bullish on the safe haven element of, 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 of these two because I think increasingly we are moving into a world where, whereby um, you look into the people's portfolio, not many of them have gold, not many of them have, 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 have Bitcoin and so on. Um, and I think um, um, that actually is, is going to be the driver uh, of the, the 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 underpinning driver of these asset these two asset classes, uh, so I'm more bullish on 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 these two, uh, less 
predictable on 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 the equities. Of course, I can still have I can make a story on equities. You know, I can say emerging markets are are probably quite 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 good because why you look at the valuation with the US, the US is just sky high against Europe valuation, sky high against emerging market valuation. Um, if a small little portion of US moved over to emerging markets, emerging markets will fly, you know, and so on. So so there are arguments why I would put some equities in the portfolio. Uh, but just on a personal basis, I, I would actually prefer the two asset classes I mentioned in, in that kind of composition. Mm -hmm. So definitely, if you guys are looking to invest into gold or perhaps Bitcoin, it may be a good time to do your own research, uh, read more about these assets and see what brings value. And if possible, uh, make sure you allocate a certain amount of percentage within your portfolio, adhering to your own risk profile, uh, just so that it doesn't go to too much volatility, like what we mentioned just now, like, don't be gung ho. Okay. So uh, we've come to the end of our questions, our planned questions. Now let's head on over to the Q&A session, which again, guys, you guys can ask questions. Bottom right-hand corner, there's a comment section. Otherwise, just request to be a speaker. I will immediately approve you guys and we will talk about your questions. Alternatively, you can DM us your questions as well and we will help you ask them to the speakers anonymously. So uh, we have a few questions from our patrons. So we will ask them first. Uh, the first question, stock picking or ETF, which is better and why? Oh, I think this is quite an interesting one. So I think uh, the, the patron is comparing Apple stock versus the S&P 500. Uh, why should one person invest in the Apple stock or perhaps choose the uh, S&P ETF? La? Han, you want to take this question? Oh, the, the, was Apple specifically quoted in the question? I just want to answer that. Uh, no, no, no. Apple wasn't quoted. I just added it in. <laughs> all right, all right. Just checking, just checking. I mean, uh, but since since you added in, I can just target you directly. Lah. Um, uh, I mean, Apple's kind of stock performance has been incredible uh, over the last kind of 20 years or so, since 20, 20 years, uh, since um, they first launched the iPad, uh, the iPod, I think it was in early 2000s, right? So it's almost 20, over 20 years ago. It's been on a tear. I think it's been up many, many, many times over since then, right? Um, but hindsight is twenty twenty, right? If you were sitting in, you know, as an investor in the late nineties or early two thousands, right? Uh, would you have invested in Apple, right? And and there are companies who are the apples of tomorrow sitting that you can find here sitting, but you would not know that they will be that until twenty forty five, for example. So the question is, if you are sitting in twenty twenty three, heading to twenty twenty four. Uh, what are your chances of being able to identify the next Apple? Sure, you can say, hey, look, if I already if I did that 22 years ago, I would be, you know, well ahead of the S&P, right? But um, you could have also invested into Yahoo, right? Um, sky high, darling tech stock uh, leader, as, as leader as, as any of the, the Magnificent Seven today, uh, uh, as ahead of the market as they were, uh, 22 years ago right and uh, you will be left with very very little today right uh, so for me uh, that in itself should tell you the story already um, i think there were several movies in 2001 which quoted yahoo as as the darling stock right and i think uh, um, that 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 uh, they, today they are no longer the case and they have not been for the last kind of decade or so so that in sense already gives you uh, a risk uh, uh, sorry it gives you a sense of the risk of, of stock picking right which is it's easy to pick stocks in 20 years time, 20 years ago. If that makes any sense, who is the Apple of today? If you could tell me that, 
uh, uh, DM me, I would like to know, because uh, I myself don't really know. Um, and that should tell you something already. And, and likewise, I think, uh, uh, unless your day job is researching and finding, literally you spend eight hours a day researching and finding specific stocks. And I can tell you that uh, uh, having been on the side of the industry, you know, it's hard to cover more than kind of a dozen, two dozen, three dozen, 20 to 30 stocks. Uh, and, 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 you, and, and what I mean by cover is not find 20, 30 winners. I mean, research 20 to 30 stocks at any given time. Uh, um, um, and stay with them for months and months and months. So then you are a true expert in, in so-called stock picking. Unless you are that person, of which I can tell you in Malaysia, uh, you can count them in several hands, right? And, and there, are, there are no more than a few dozen people who can do this, right? Because it's their job, they get paid to do it, uh, either that or they, they have infinite time on their hands and just love to do it. Uh, unless you're that person, uh, you are better off uh, going with not just an ETF. ETF is a, is a cheap way to it. There are many ways to get a basket, right? Uh, you can choose an active management, actively managed portfolio. You can choose an index fund, which is similar to ETF, but without the the the, the minute to minute volatility. You just get a daily NAV, uh, uh, and there's no risk of you know running away from the actual NAV of the the the, the fund. Uh, or you can use the ETF, which is is a low cost way to get into the market, right? But either of these things allow you to benefit from said diversification without having to pick stocks. So hopefully that answers the question and a little bit more. Uh, if you could tell me who the Apple of today is, uh, or rather who's going to be Apple in, tw in, in 22 years' time, and tell me that who, who is it today. I'll be, I, I, my DMs are open. <laughs> uh, make, make sure you share me the result also, Lahan, if somebody DMs you, because I, I definitely want to know about this as well. And, and there's also another perspective that I can add on to what you just said, right? Uh, is that when you are, when, when, as investors, if we are stock picking, let's say Apple, how certain are you that this company will continue to exist in the next 20 or 30 years and not end up like companies, uh, what you mentioned just now, like Yahoo and all those tech companies which, which died 20 or 30 years ago. So uh, if you can confidently answer that question, I confidently believe that Apple will exists for the next 20 to 30 years will continue to make all-time highs then by all means go ahead but otherwise uh, if you don't have the time or the knowledge or the research power maybe sticking to an ETF or the products that Han mentioned just now could be a better option uh, I'll pass the ball to Mr. Sunny as well uh, Mr. Sunny want to take a bite on this stock picking or ETF which is better and why I'll probably agree with Han I think um, of course if um, it's much more enticing and exciting to pick stocks hoping to 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 get the uh, so-called next Amazon uh, next Nvidia and stuff and stuff like that um, but it's one out of a hundred one out of a thousand and such so it's a bit like a lottery where you could end up the winner or you just could not you know just be the one of the uh, uh, guys who just hold on to a dud um, so the safer way is of course then an ETF um, I think that would ensure that you your probability of making, although not as much as a single stock, uh, your probability of making is much higher. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's move on over to the next question. Now, this one is also quite interesting. Uh, when is the next Bitcoin halving? Oh, we're going into crypto right now. If the halving were to happen in 2024, what is the strategy to prepare for it? to buy crypto, especially altcoins. Wow, Han, I think previously you, you, you talked about this, right? It's not really about speculating when when to allocate to the asset, but rather just beginning to allocate itself. You, you want to talk more about it? Sure, sure. No problem. Uh, I guess answer the first question first. When is the next Bitcoin halving? 
uh, more specifically, is sometime in April 2024. Uh, um, there's a small chance it happens in March or May, but but chances are, uh, 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 back smacked back in the smack back smack down in the middle. Sorry, what's the word? Right? Smack bang in the middle of 20, uh, April 2024 is when uh, it, it, it is likely to happen. Um, now, what the halving is is um, uh, is is a technical. Uh, 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 is pro programmed into the supply uh, emission schedule of bitcoins, where the miners get paid uh, half the amount of bitcoins after that event. It means currently the the mining uh, reward for for keeping the bitcoin network secure is six point two five bitcoins each block, which happens every ten minutes. Uh, um, emissions will drop to three point one two five in April twenty twenty four. So that's kind of four one two three four months away or so. Um, and this is like as if like imagine the entire like global gold mine suddenly right you put in the same amount of effort mining gold right but you, rather than getting uh, x tons of gold every day suddenly you get half of x right and imagine what kind what what, what that does to the gold market assuming demand is the same so this is a big assumption right that demand is the same right paripasu the same demand, you get half the supply. What's that going to do to, to, to gold prices? Likewise, in, in this case, Bitcoin prices with half supply, same demand. You're going to see a run-up, right? Uh, this is just Economics 101. Obviously, if everybody expects this to happen, that's not going to happen, right? People are going to be pre preparing ahead of time. When halving happens, you might see a big drop because things don't exactly happen how you expect them to happen. So supply is fixed, but demand... Is, is is driven by speculation speculation is driven by positioning folks like you and me discussing it right now uh, personally i you know I, I say this on every discussion around bitcoin right which is don't focus so much around uh, these kind of short term stuff right uh having is a long term thing that happens every 4 years or so right now uh, um and and and, and so, you know institutional adoption of bitcoin is coming you know it's coming very soon in a matter of weeks uh, you can trade it if you want to. We have people at Halogen internally who do trade these things, right? We have, you know, professional traders, uh, both short and long term, uh, in-house, right? Who do research and really try and research levels, look at flows, really position ourselves to, to trade certain things. But if you are an investor, and I use this term very, very specifically, right? And you want to consider Bitcoin, right? In your portfolio. Uh, uh, don't focus so much on what prices are at a specific point in time. Don't focus so much on where things are going. Focus more on how much you have of it, right? If you're a high-risk investor, you're an aggressive investor, and your Bitcoin allocation is 0.1%, that's probably a little too low if you're looking at Bitcoin, right? Why bother, right? Uh, for a high-risk, aggressive investor, you should be in the single-digit, high single-digit percentage of, 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 of crypto in your portfolio if you're considering it. Uh, and if you're a conservative investor, one to two percent, right? So low single digit, right? Focus on that, right? If if and get to that, you know, in a, in a in a measured manner, right? Get to, the, to your target allocations, uh, those that gives you the best risk adjusted returns within a portfolio when you include crypto, right? And, and so, for example, if you're underinvested now, consider adding a bit, regardless of what happens with halving, right? If you're overinvested, you might want to. Uh, uh, look at certain levels to take off your exposure, right? When it gets to 45, 48, 52, whatever the, those levels will be and take off some, right? Because you are over-invested, your volatility of portfolio might be too high in and around the halving event, right? Which is for sure going to be a volatile event, right? Up or down, 
right? So that's kind of my 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 perspective, you know. And, and I'm saying this, you know, as a crypto person uh, uh, who who runs a crypto company. Right? Yeah, thank you so much for the insights, Han. Um, Mr. Sunny, same question. Uh, talking about Bitcoin itself, how can one position himself into this volatile asset? Oh, position. Okay, not nothing to do with having uh, volatile. Okay, so if it's just putting in your money, it then of course you allocate appropriate amount. Uh, we recommend basically about three percent max, given the volatility. So we control volatility by position sizing the, the exposure. And I think 3% I've read before, uh, basically um, financial planners, both in the US and many many of them across the world, see that as the uh, benchmark uh, of, of how much you should be allocating. Because traditionally you would put, let's say, go maybe five, maximum 10 in your portfolio. Um, and because go has a certain volatility, which is really considered very high, uh, but because Bitcoin is much, much higher, then you don't put five or ten. You basically put three or, you know, maximum five. Basically, that's around it. Yeah. Um, but I think just touching a little bit on the halving part, I, I personally feel that basically since the majority of supply of Bitcoin has really been issued, uh, I think I, Hans can correct me. I don't know whether we're at 18 or 19 million uh, at this point. Um, the the remaining two or even three million, I guess, in my own personal opinion, won't make much of a difference, um, and 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 that's going to be spread out between now and maybe the next what hundred years, and such. But it's really the um, the uptake or uptake in institutional participation uh, that's going to drive this thing uh, very very strongly. You know, we 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 ourselves have a Bitcoin, uh, not Bitcoin. So we ourselves have a digital fund that we we distribute, um, and and the fund manager is 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 telling us that basically the activity, uh, when he speaks to 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 people, the activity on the ground, um, underneath the price, meaning to say that price may be doing something, uh, but the developers, uh, um, the activities, or it's it's really getting, uh, it's really at all time high. So, so price is one thing, you know, price went down to 16, people are worried, price goes up to 30, people are happy and such. Beside that, um, the activities surrounding cryptocurrencies, especially that of Bitcoin, is continuing, it's flourishing, um, um, and, and adoption is, 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 is just, you know, going one way. So at the end of the day, uh, I think just to bring it down to a layman level is uh, fundamentals are, are still there. Um, and so basically, it's an asset class which I think will will just continue to flourish, and and um, you will see more and more adoption by 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 the institutions. Okay, now we are on to the next and last question for the night. Uh, this one is regarding local banks. Okay, it's starting with local banks like RHB and Maybank doable for a beginner in the KLCI market. And a more specific question, outlook on the NEO and electric car market. Oh, Han, you want to take a bite at this? Um, is it because I'm a big EV fan? Uh, I am, but I didn't know you knew, I didn't know you knew that. Oh, um, I knew it all along. I just guessed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, no, good questions, good questions. I guess uh, 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 is it, your question reminds me of one I had from an old client of mine who, who was looking to invest beyond EPF and say, hey, look, I, I want to take more risk beyond EPF. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm almost retired already. Should I consider 
you know, investing in banks. I heard I should just put my money in like three banks, Maybank, Public Bank, and one, maybe one more other bank, and then collect the dividends for the rest of my life. Um, what, I, what I told him and, and what I'll tell you guys is, uh, well, you can do that, right? In Malaysia, we're a bit unique. Uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that or you, you should or shouldn't do that. You can do that. We are slightly unique in that we are highly financialized uh, economy. Like uh, Banks uh, form a large part of KLCI. Right? I think uh, five out of the top 10 uh, market cap companies in, in Malaysia are banks. right? And, and that means that if you invest in banks, you are investing in a, in a large part of the Malaysian uh, uh, stock market anyway. Right? Having said that though, while, 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 while the last kind of 20, 30 years have been you know, tremendous for bank investors, meaning people who invest in banks and collect dividends and roll, compound the dividends, as well as experience capital appreciation from growing banks and, and a more financialized uh, economy that we have, uh, I can't say for certain that that will last or that will continue as a trend for the next 20 years. Right? So for me, uh, personally, I'd say, hey, look, like if you're investing in Malaysia, banks, yeah, sure. But there are many other blue chips you might want to consider, uh, if at all, in the name of diversification. Unless you are a bank expert, you know exactly uh, how OPRs impact bank profitability. You understand exactly where we are in the credit cycle around banking, NPLs. Uh, you understand... Uh, 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 where banks uh, 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 capital uh, tier 1 capital are uh, if all these terms scare you or you, you if all these terms suddenly give you a blank look perhaps consider diversifying away from just banks right? and looking beyond just the returns of banks uh, because that you really require to really understand banking the whole industry well to really play that market or invest and, and strategize within that that industry alone and know when to get off or underweight the industry and know when to overweight the industry. Uh, so it's better to just get a more diversified exposure. There are plenty of other blue chips in the chemical space, in the property space, in the uh, plantation space in Malaysia that give decent dividends. In REITs, also decent dividends, you know, in the 4 5 6% range. Uh, if that's what you're looking for in terms of like, hey, what should I invest in? Sure, that's, that's, that's what you should be looking at. If, if that's the basis of you going to a bank, right, or going to invest in a bank. Uh, as for EVs, uh, there's clearly a lot of structural global investment, and certainly here in Malaysia, focus on EV and EV-related industries. You know, there's clearly a, a really strange tax exemption for EVs, uh, and right now being enjoyed by T20 people, right? Most EVs are priced above 100,000 ringgit, which by, by definition is in the realms of T20 people. Right, at people buying above 100,000 ringgit cars. Uh, but a, another place you might want to consider, uh, uh, if, you are, if you are keen and you are, you are knowledgeable in the EV and related ecosystem space, is things like charging, charger, people building chargers, pe people researching and building and manufacturing batteries, stuff like that. Sure. I mean, but again, if, the, if, if I scared you with any of these terms around understanding the ecosystem, right? Uh, then perhaps you might want to consider not doing that and uh, diversifying via uh, a diversified fund investing in Malaysian equities. If you want to focus on dividends, a dividend-focused equity fund. If you want to focus on growth, a growth-focused equity fund. Sure, sure. Thank, thank you so much, Han. Uh, Mr. Sunny, same question. Uh, Malaysian banks, what are your uh, insights or impressions towards it? And, uh, <laughs> and... I have to stop you. Yeah. Wrong, wrong person. I have very little... Uh, 
uh, knowledge on 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 Malaysian banks. The, <laughs> the only thing that the only thing that sticks to my mind was when I was giving a talk in Malaysia a um, couple of years ago. It may, may have been even uh, right before COVID. Uh, so I gave this talk and I was saying, you know, markets you have to be careful. You know, we 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 are now facing this uh, because I think COVID just came out in China. So I said, you know, I, and and I kind of said, you know this thing will, will spread and but we don't know the impact so you have to be careful so people were a bit worried and during the break this lady came up to me and and not break sorry at the end of it this lady came up we're quite an elderly lady and she said that should i sell my 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 stocks and i asked her so what stocks do you have um i'm holding a particular bank i won't mention the name lah. um this particular bank itself i said um, okay how long have you been holding it i've been holding it for like 20 over years she said oh 20 over years. Um, so as I calculated in my mind. So you basically held it through the uh, Asian financial crisis, dot-com crisis, global financial crisis, <laughs> and practically all crises that happened uh, since the past 20 years. And I said, so um, hmm, why are you holding on to this stock? Well, because it pays me uh, consistently a dividend of about 7, 7% per annum and such. Ah, so I said, if you've been holding it for 20 years, you've literally sat through all the financial crisis, you've seen prices go up by X, Y, Z, and you've seen prices come down by ABC, whatever amount, uh, and you've still held on to it, which means that you are not there for the capital gains. You are there for the dividends. Yeah, yeah, I'm here for the dividends. So there's no reason for you to sell, even if I tell you that we're at the doorstep of a crisis. Because as long as you're confident that the stock or the bank can continue to pay you that dividend, then you just collect dividend. They say, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's what I want to do. So there will be, I think Pants mentioned a little bit about it, but there will be people who who, who have locked in nice levels um, and just want a dividend. Because at the end of the day, if someone pays you 7% dividend, um, you can do the math. Uh, basically, after seven years, you probably would have gained back your capital. Uh, uh, not seven years, but basically about 10 years, you have gained back your capital compounded probably um, so you know there is such a thing as not worrying about the price uh, but just focusing on the dividend itself that's the only thing I know about Malaysian banks <laughs> okay okay so so this one is the next one is about EVs la. the same the same person asked oh. uh, outlooks on the new and electric car market yeah um, for, for, for us there are three basic themes which one cannot escape from um, and these teams are structural in nature, which means that, you know, over a period of 10, 15, 20 years, these things will just be, the point B will be higher than where we are, point A. Um, uh, cyclically, on a cyclical basis, cyclical basis, it may go up and down. Okay? Uh, but these three teams are basically digi digitization of the economy, okay? whether you use blockchain, whether it's, it's cybersecurity and so on and so forth. Number two is basically the decarbonization of the, the global economy. And this is basically your EVs, your, your greens, and so on and so forth. And thirdly is the commodity super cycle, which we think at the end of the day, when you want to go, especially when you want to, to, to decarbonize uh, your economy, you basically have to, you know, iron, ironically or not, you have to actually overhaul your whole economy now to, uh, to work on green and you need, Aluminium, you you need you need to rebuild basically everything from scratch again. 
even your cars need silver, your solar panels need silver, you know, that, that kind of thing. So these three things we think, and therefore in the general term, I'm not, I'm not as an expert in, in, in EVs as, as Hans may be, but we do think that basically this, this category has no way to go but to go up, especially when we're talking about something which is not only driven by the private sector, it's driven by the public sector. And public sector means that every single country has regulations in place, uh, whether it's a Kyoto Protocol, what, uh, a court, or whatever the case is, to say that by 2040, Singapore doesn't won't have any more petrol combustion engines. And every country has that one, whether it's 2030, 2040, 2050. By so-and-so, I would have converted everything into so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. It's all regulated and it's all cast in 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 stone so to say and so how can you how can anybody say that we're not going to achieve that because we are going to achieve that there's no turning back it's a question of of basically uh, how fast we get there so these are things which we think that if you close eye by now you know probably in 20 30 years later uh one of this this sector could be your so-called amazon sector uh, because these are things which you can't reverse already um, so these are some of the things which we feel um, um, more or less cast in stone that it's, it's probably, uh, again, cast in stone doesn't mean 100%, but we probably do, has a good chance of doing much better than any other sector. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that is basically it for our session tonight, guys. Hopefully you guys learned something. Personally, I, I have a lot, a lot of things to unpack, okay? And um, for those of you guys who missed the earlier part of the session tonight, do not worry. It's entirely recorded. Right after I end this space, you'll be able to listen to the raw, uncut recording. Alternatively, if you want a cleaner recording, the one you guys have to wait two to three days, I will upload it on our Spotify, which by the way, we have a Spotify. Huh? You guys can head on over to Spotify, search for our name, The Futurists. And listen to all the previous episodes with these two speakers as well. We've done about 7 to 10 talks with them already. So, so a, lot, a lot of things shared. And uh, just to quickly bring it back to the speakers tonight, any last words before we end the session? Han, last things for 2024 or for investors here? Yeah, sure. I think uh, the first, hopefully you take away that the, you know, even experts get it wrong. Experts got it very wrong in 2022, right? Uh, I myself, I'm not, not spared from such mistakes. I assume that there, there, there would be a recession towards the end of 2023. It has not come. It might still come in, in the first half or second half of 2024, but, you know, I hold my head and say, hey, look, I was thinking the end of 2023 would be, you know, in the US recession, maybe Europe, uh, and the, the world might, might catch a cold, right? So... Uh, even I can get things wrong. But despite me getting things wrong, like I'm still very confident with how I position my portfolio from last year to this year and I'm continue being confident from this year to next year because uh, 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 my my portfolio is built for the long term. I, I, I first specifically did that and I encourage you guys to do that too because it really helps you sleep at night as well knowing that, hey, look, regardless of what happens next year or the following year, you know, in, you know, in 10 years' time, in 20 years' time, you know, I remain on track to hit my financial goals, whether it's to send my children to uni in whatever uh, course they want to do or uh, to write, retire at 55 or 60 uh, and gain that financial independence, regardless of what your goal is. Setting yourself up for that goal in the long term really helps you sleep at night and 
ask questions not because you're fearful, but ask questions because you really want to just want to find out more, and that really helps you with understanding markets more. So that's hopefully what I leave you with. Mm, thank, thank you so much, Han. Uh, Mr. Sani, last thoughts before we close the session? Exactly the same. Um, you know, I think when we are in a uh, situation where when we look into 2024, we look back into 2023 and say that, damn, nothing nothing worked as, 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 as it was supposed to work. This is something, this is an environment where, where you can't really uh, make sense of it um, in, a, in many ways. Um, so how do I tackle 2024? So the way you tackle 2024 is exactly what Han said. You make sure that if you get caught out, you are caught out with things that you are telling yourself, I don't mind holding on to it. Don't worry lah. You know, so so if you're if you if you're loaded up on things which which you know you're comfortable to hang on to it because it's going to still be around in ten years time, you know fundamentally it's it's something that has value to it, um, and you don't and even if it goes down by five, ten, fifteen percent, you're telling yourself this is a function of price, meaning to say that the reason it's down is not because the value has gone down or not because the fundamentals have deteriorated it's because market sentiment is bad people are selling prices have gone down the speculators those weak hands are selling and such okay i'm very confident i've i've entered at a good price and i'm very confident in about 5 10 15 years time it's going to be at a particular price which will be rewarding to me so so i think that kind of attitude will serve you well because otherwise i think this is going to be a market whereby you're going to be like, oh, time to risk on. Oh, time to risk off. You know, time to risk on again, then time to risk off. So it may just whipsaw you into different directions and you end up none the better at the end of the 2024. Uh, I, I, yeah, so I don't, if, if, if you're going to take a permanent position or a longer term position, it has to be with things that you're comfortable, even if it declines. Yeah, thank you so much, Mr. Sunny. As investors in the audience, if you guys have uh, sat through the entire session, I think the important lesson is to determine your own risk profile, okay, and and then allocate your portfolio accordingly. And like what Mr. Sunny said just now, I think it made a lot of sense. Uh, make sure if you are caught out, at least you won't feel bad on holding an asset for long term. And as for people who are investing for short term, make sure you also adjust your risk profile accordingly. And that wraps up our session tonight. Thank you so much, guys, for joining. Thank you, Mr. Sani. Thank you, Han, for agreeing to become speakers Thank for this you. session again. It's really wonderful to have you guys. Uh, just a quick favor in the audience for you guys. Do these two speakers a good favor. Uh, tap on their profiles. It only takes two seconds. And tap on the follow button. Okay. And while you're at it, you can also tap on our profile. Follow us as well. Uh, all our previous episodes are all recorded on Spotify. You can listen back to it. And uh, I'll see you guys in the next one, guys. Bye. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks.